All right, let's start with prayer. We've got a great sermon in store for you today. Matthew chapter 21. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, big day. Beautiful sunshine outside. The sun of righteousness shining inside. You've already ministered to us in beautiful music. Great to have had the interview with Joel. Looking forward to getting him on board. Looking forward to the Friday program. And Father, today's a great day. It's a great day to be alive. It's a great day to be here on the southern end of the Gold Coast. It is a great day to be in Australia. And it's a great day to be a son or a daughter of you. Father, as we turn our attention now to Scripture, to the text, uh, may you orient our minds away from all of the busyness and all of the materialism and all of the stuff that clogs our lives, and may we have several minutes, 45 minutes at least, of uninterrupted focus on you. Father, give us the strength to put our phones on airplane mode. Give us the strength to look away from electronic devices for just this short spell And may we be riveted to Jesus. May we be riveted to the text. And may we come away with a better understanding of who you are, who we are, and our relationship to the wider world is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. All right, let's open to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Our sermon today... There we go. Our sermon today is titled... That fruity difference. Oh, yeah, that fruity difference. Matthew chapter 21. Now, let's orient ourselves as to where we are in our ongoing study of the Gospel of Matthew. We are 21 chapters after today through a 28-chapter book. And we're going to basically be in the the book of Matthew for the rest of the year. And then we don't really know what the future holds. I should probably say by way of parenthetical statement that For probably four of the last seven years, my favorite book currently has been the book of Romans. And I've spent years and years reading everything I could about Romans and reading Romans itself. Then for probably two of the last three years, my favorite book transitioned to the book of Acts. And I was just pouring myself into the book of Acts. We had a year, a half a year long series here on the book of Acts. When I would travel, I would preach on the book of Acts. And so I really found myself immersed in Luke's account of the history of the early church. But over the last six months, my new favorite book has emerged, and this this is a book that in many ways is responsible for my conversion to Jesus, and my newfound passion for it is just brimming over, and I'm getting everything I can get my hands on, I'm reading every sermon. In fact, I just listened to another sermon and a superb sermon yesterday from Pastor Nathan Renner, and that is the book of Revelation, super fired up about the book of Revelation. In fact, so much so that I am plotting and planning and strategizing a lengthy series on the book of Revelation in this church. At least half a year, probably a year-long series on the book of Revelation. However, what we're up against is that I do not want to record that series until we have the cameras in place and it will be properly recorded and broadcast. So I need you guys to put your hands together and be praying that we will get these cameras ordered, that we will get them set up, and that we can get this church refurb done quick as possible so that we can begin this year-long or half-year-long series on the book of Revelation as soon as possible. Does that sound like a good idea? I am persuaded increasingly, I have never not been persuaded of this since I've become a believer in Jesus, but I am increasingly persuaded that the book of Revelation and its twin book of Daniel are two books that that must be understood for this time by this people in this place. 
And so I want to get this media ministry on a fast track so that we can get those things recorded. We don't know what we're going to do with the first part of next year, but we'll find something as an important placeholder until hopefully about early to the middle part of next year, and then we'll be right into a lengthy series on the book of Revelation. But for our purposes now, we're in the book of Matthew, and we have made our way through the various chapters that we have divided the book of Matthew up into. We spent the first four chapters, emphasis there is the sun. Next three chapters, Sermon on the Mount, emphasis is preacher. Then emphasis on Jesus as healer, Jesus as leader in those uh, middle chapters there in Matthew as he's preparing to send out the disciples to the wider world. Then eight chapters, 13 to 20, we have emphasized Jesus as teacher. That was the last sermon I preached here, in fact, Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus introduces his teaching in parables, teaching in illustrations and stories. And then in my absence, it's been Pastor David and Pastor Jared who have finished out the section, the chapter on Jesus as teacher. We now transition to the penultimate chapter, Jesus as seer. Now, with a raising of hands, how many people in here know what the word seer means? Raise your hand in this context. Okay, that would mean at least half of us don't know what the word means. Well, the word means exactly what it sounds like, seer. Somebody who sees. A seer was a prophet. Here's a dictionary definition for you. A person who is supposed to be able through supernatural insight to see what the future holds, that is a prophet. In these chapters, chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, Jesus begins to occupy a role that is very consistent with the prophetic personas that we see in the Old Testament. There are the themes of judgment, the themes of impending disaster, the themes of of repentance and of coming close to God. Jesus is here, yes, also teaching, but there's a transition in his teaching. There is an investment of prophetic urgency in chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24. And then we'll have our final chapter, Jesus as conqueror. So here we are, our first chapter with Jesus as seer. And it's quite fascinating to think about how disproportionate all of the Gospels are in their emphasis on the final days of Jesus' life. Since Matthew chapter 16, Matthew's Gospel has been tilting ineluctably toward the cross and toward Jesus' execution. There's a sense of of impending doom. There's a sense of inevitability and of destiny. You might remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had said to his disciples, hey, who do people think I am? Who, who are people saying on the streets that I am? And some are like, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. Jesus is like, okay, who do you think I am? Peter speaks up on behalf of the others. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirms Peter's affirmation of his messianic identity and he says, nobody taught you this, Peter. Nobody taught you this. My father in heaven revealed this to you. And then Matthew says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, from that time... In other words, after Jesus is satisfied that his disciples know his identity, you are Messiah. Jesus is like, nobody taught you that. You didn't learn that in the school of the scribes or the Pharisees. My father taught you that. And Jesus is like, okay, now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I'm going to do. This is a major switch, a total reorientation of reality for the disciples because they believed that they knew what a Messiah would do. A Messiah will come and he will reverse oppression and he will reverse injustice and he will establish Israel above the nations. He will bring Israel out from underneath the yoke of Roman bondage. Hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah. We know what a Messiah is going to do. So Jesus is like, 
Who do you think I am? We think you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Matthew then says, from that time, once they knew who he was, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and, what is that next word? Suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. What? And be raised again the third day. The idea that a Messiah would be killed was patently absurd. It's like talking about a a wet desert or a modest Kardashian or a square circle. A, A killed Messiah is oxymoronic. If you are a Messiah, you are not killed. You are killing. Okay, so when Jesus is like, who do you think I am? We think you're the Messiah. Now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to kill the Romans. I'm going to be killed by them. This, of course, is absolutely absurd, and Peter utterly protests and says, this is never going to happen to you. But ever since chapter 16, we, the gospel of Matthew has now tilted, and we are tumbling ineluctably toward Jesus' execution at the hand of not only the religious leaders, but of Rome. There's this sense, if, if this was a cinema soundtrack, since Matthew chapter 16, there's been this low cello tone in the back, this ominous threatening tone of cello and low bass. You you know how a filmmaker can create a situation where you don't feel quite at ease. Since Matthew chapter 16, we should not feel at ease. And when we get to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and we are in the last week of his life. Now this is quite interesting. If Jesus lived 30 years, we'll just say 30 years exactly, that's 10,800 days The last week of his life, that is to say the last seven days of his life, would not even be a tenth, it would be roughly a half of a tenth of a percent of his life. Okay, the last week of his life is 0.065%. Not even a tenth of a percent of his life, but look at how massively disproportionately the Gospels emphasize the final week of Jesus' life. I've just put it up here on the screen for you. In the Gospel of Matthew, 8 of 28 chapters are focused on the final week of Jesus' life. That's 29%. In the Gospel of Mark, 6 of 16 chapters are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life, 38%. In Luke, 25%. And John, 21 chapters, the last week of Jesus' life begins in chapter 12. That's almost 60% of the Gospel. You think about how massive and uh, disproportionate the emphasis is on Jesus' final week. Well, the answer is obvious as to why this would be. Because the disciples understood that the most significant thing that Jesus would do would raise from the dead. If he was simply a proverbial teacher and a nice guy and a healer, okay, fine and good. But if this guy rose from the dead, if he literally, bodily, historically rose from the dead, that would be the single most significant event in all of human history. And so every one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tilt tremendously, disproportionately toward the reality, hey, this guy... This guy was not only a Messiah figure. There were lots of Messiah figures in the first century. This guy was not only killed. This guy was raised from the dead. And so when we get down to the last week of Jesus' life, Matthew turns up the volume. Mark turns up the volume, as does Luke and John. Pay attention, is what they're saying. Pay attention to this. Everything up to this has been important. This is super important. Tune in to this. And in Matthew chapter 21, we find Jesus making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Come with me to Matthew chapter 21. 
Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read the first several verses here, probably down to about verse 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus went to his disciples, and he said to them, go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with the donkey. Loose them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled. Remember again, that's Matthew's favorite word. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. All of these things are happening, Matthew says, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, which was spoken by the prophet saying, quoting out from Zechariah, tell the daughter of Zion, behold your king. Behold your what word, everyone? Your king. Look, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their clothes on them and they set Jesus on the colt. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! That means save! Save! Hosanna to the son of David. It's the, it's the Jewish equivalent of God save the king. God save the king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the city was moved. The word there is even stronger. The city was quaked. The city was shaken. They said, who is this? Most of Jesus' ministry had been in the rural environs outside of Jerusalem. Lots of townspeople, humble people, rural people knew who Jesus was. But when this guy comes into the city, a lot of the city folk and the religious leaders are like, who is this? So the multitude said, ah, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 21, there are basically six events that happen. Jesus' triumphant entry, which we've just read. Jesus is then going to transition straight to the temple where he will cleanse it. Then there will be the cursing of a fruitless fig tree. Jesus' authority will be questioned, questioned, and that will raise questions about John's baptism. He will then tell two parables, a parable of two sons and a parable of the wicked vine dressers. We're going to cover all of it. Let's start with Jesus' triumphant entry. First of all, this has royalty written all over it. It might not be right on the surface for you, but even the casual reader, even the 2016 modern Australian reader can pick up the fact something royal, something significant, something triumphant is happening here. But what is fairly obvious to us is absolutely unmissable in its original Jewish context. Let's look at six identifiers that what's happening here is Jesus being announced and praised as the king. First of all, he rides in on an unridden colt in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Not only that, there was a sort of uh, a, a, a myth and a, and a mystique about kings riding on animals that had never been ridden before. So Jesus is not just on any ordinary horse. He's not on a horse that had been broken and ridden before. Matthew makes the point, and Mark makes it even stronger. He's on a colt that had never been ridden. This has royal and kingly uh, uh, illusions all wrapped around it, and it's a direct fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Behold, your king comes to you riding on a colt. Number two. The spreading out of the garments, very significant in terms of royalty here. This actually takes us back to an Old Testament story, 2 Kings chapter 9, 
Verse 13 says, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under Jehu. This is the new king. There actually was the king Ahab, but Ahab is going to be killed and, and, and judgment is upon him. And the prophet comes and says, hey, look, judgment is upon the king. Set Jehu up as the king. And when Jehu was set up as the king and anointed by the prophet, all of the people put their garments on the top of the steps underneath him and they blew their trumpets and they said, Jehu is king. So when Jesus begins, when, when Jesus is set on this donkey and the, cl- the clothes are laid over, people begin to throw their garments in the way of the colt as he's winding his way up the, the hillside into the entrance of Jerusalem. This is pregnant with royal meaning. These garments are telling a story. And everybody there knows the story that's being told. The problem is, is that the story they think they're telling is not the story that Jesus is telling. But for, for this brief moment... Jesus allows their enthusiasm and their passion to have a king, even though it's misunderstood and mistaken, he allows it, we're going to get to this in just a second, because it's serving the larger purpose of getting him to Jerusalem as king. They misunderstand in what sense he's the king, they understand, misunderstand what he's going to do, but they were, there was a sense of electricity and, and pregnancy in the air in first century Judaism. Anybody that was a miracle healer or uh, had some, uh, posed any kind of a threat to the religious establishment, man, they were ready to crown somebody as king. So they're like, whoa, there's a guy over here, this is Jesus of Nazareth. There's this like electricity. This guy's the king and all of this this royal uh, symbolism starts unfolding. Number three, the use of celebratory branches. 200 years before this, Judas Maccabeus, known as the hammer, had actually won Jewish independence and when Judas Maccabeus made his grand entrance into Jerusalem during the, the, the intertestamental period, they cut down palm branches and waved them before Judah. They're like, here he is. This guy's the new hammer. That's what Judas Maccabeus' name was. He had won in decisive battles Jewish independence. The problem is, is that they think that Jesus is coming in as a new Judas Maccabeus figure. He's coming in as the hammer. In fact, he's going to come in and have a hammer used on him. But never mind that. That's not, that's not for them to understand as yet. The palm branches waving. Number four, they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. God save the king. Jesus then makes his way to the temple and cleanses it. We'll be there in just a second. And when all of this is happening, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they have a question. It's right uh, on the tip of their tongue. By whose authority are you? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're an authority figure? Do you think you're a Messiah figure? Are you setting yourself up as a kingly figure? So all of this is, is clearly indicating there is a royal, messianic, kingly significance to this entrance. This is not Jesus sneaking in the back door. This is Jesus coming in. It must have happened quite quickly because if Rome had caught wind of this, man, they would have shut it down. If there was any sort of rumblings about a purported king or the coronation of a king or the affirmation of a king, man, Rome is going to stamp on that and stamp on it quickly because they feared any sort of you know, public unrest. So all of this must have happened quite quickly. The colt comes, the uh, garments are set on the colt, Jesus is set up, they wave the branches, the garments are laid before him. Before you know it, he's in the city. You get the sense that there was kind of a quickness to it because they're like, what? 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 P- people missed it. Who, who is this? But the people on the outside of the city, they knew what had happened. And Jesus makes his way into the city. And I want to just say a great little pastoral point on this. I love this. The crowd is clueless about Jesus' kingship and why he has now entered Jerusalem. They don't understand it. 
They're happy that he's the Messiah, but they totally misunderstand what the nature of Jesus' messianic identity is. But look at this point, and I hope you take this point with you. Take this one home. Remember this one on Wednesday. This is a giant point derived straight from the text. Jesus does not wait for our understanding to be perfect or for our motives to be pure in order for us to worship him and serve him. Somebody better say amen to that. Jesus knows that they don't understand. He knows that the way that they're thinking about him as king and the way they're thinking about him as Messiah is not true, but he doesn't say, no, 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 no. You can't worship me and you can't serve me until you've got all of your theological ducks lined up and your heart is perfectly in the right place. I love the fact that we come to Jesus with impure motives. We come to Jesus with misunderstandings. We come to Jesus in the fog of hypocrisy and Jesus is like, I will take you however you come to me. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will take you. Can the church say amen? Man, I love that. Absolutely love that. The question is, who is this? Who is this? That's what they say when Jesus makes his way finally to the temple. There's a, you know, a a, a bit of a a, a upheaval and a bit of, you know, commotion, and and somebody says, who, who is it? Friends, I want to tell you right now, these three words constitute the question that will face every single human being in the judgment. This is the question that every person in this room will face and answer and everybody outside of this room will face and answer. Who is this? If Jesus is who he claimed to be and if Jesus is who Peter said he is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, this is the question. Who is this? Jesus then makes his way to the temple. Join me there in the text if you would. Verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. This is Jesus in a new aspect. This is Jesus in a new demeanor. We have not seen this Jesus before. Physically, biologically, we've seen this Jesus before, but this is an attitude. This is an aspect. This is a a perspective and an action that we have not seen. This is aggressive. Turning over tables We have seen Jesus cleanse the temple early on, so I guess we could make the exception there. But for the most part, this is unusual behavior for Jesus, turning over tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of thieves. Verse 14, this is hugely significant. We'll come back to it. Then after he drove these people out and turned over their tables, then the blind and the lame came to the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the thank you for that amen, it was an appropriate amen. It's exactly placed in the right spot. That's the point that Matthew was making. Hey, the blind and the lame, they came and they were healed. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the cries have not stopped. Maybe some of the children that were on the hillside as Jesus was making his way up on the fall have now wound their way to the, to the outer port parts of the temple and, and the kids are crying out. Hosanna to the son of David. And they turn to Jesus and they're like, do you hear what these young children are saying? And Jesus is like, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went there to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. The whole thing sort of like builds. It's like, it's building. There's the palm branches. There's the garments. There's the colt. There's the Hosanna to the son of David. There's this building. He goes into the temple, tips over the tables. This whole thing is building. It's escalating. You get the sense. This is it. This is the big moment. And then verse 17 is like, and he went to sleep. He left. He went to Bethany and he went to sleep. 
The whole thing like builds as you, if you're a filmmaker, it builds up. And then there's this like catharsis, this like things calm right down. They would have set their tables back up and got back to sort of doing their thing. But Jesus has made a statement, and it's a statement that has not been lost on Matthew and other observers. Jesus has gone into the temple to cleanse it, and not just to cleanse it, and this is key. In the act of turning over the table, Jesus would have, if at least temporarily, stopped the temple activities. Let this settle in. The temple activities stop. They cease. Jesus has put a stop to what's happening in the temple. This clearly anticipates, there's almost a a sense of judgment in the air. God is not happy with this changing of money and the selling of doves and the gross economic disparity between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. And when Jesus lifts those tables and tips them over, he is saying, God judges this system. God judges this temple. And even if only for a moment, the people in the temple wouldn't have even probably discerned just how significant this was. Man, who was that rabble rouser that came in here turning over? Anyway, back to business. Turn the tables back up. Get the money on it. Get the doves ready. They don't understand that what has just happened is Messiah has come to his temple and he has stopped the operations of the temple, even if only momentarily. Jesus has announced, pronounced, and enacted judgment on the temple. And then he quietly slips away to Bethany. Now, a couple things here. Back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 5, Jerusalem was not yet Jerusalem. It was a city that was set on a hill that was held by a group of people called the Jebusites. And the Jebusites held Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you've been there, is kind of up on a mountain. And, and the Jebusites held Jerusalem, and David came to try and take Jerusalem. David, King David. And the, the king of the Jebusites mocked David because Jerusalem was, it was very difficult to, to marshal an attack against. And he mocked David, and he said, good luck trying to take this city... In fact, we'll take the blind and the lame and we'll put them on watch. Good luck. And David was infuriated by the taunting of the Jebusite king. And so he said to his mighty men, he said, okay, if any one of you can climb up this water shaft and take the city back, I'll make you a general in my army. And one of David's mighty men climbed up the water shaft and another climbed up the water shaft and they got up there and they overtook the city very quickly. And then David, because he didn't want to be reminded of that taunt, Oh, the blind and the lame will keep you out, David. We don't need to worry about you. When David got there, he literally said, there will be no blind and no lame in this city. He made an official, what appears to be an official decree in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8. The blind and the lame will not come into the house. This is exactly the point that Matthew is making when he says, when Jesus came into the house, he went out of his way to say, are there any blind? Are there any lame? Come into the house. He is the son of David. He is not David in an act of petulance and frustration who didn't want to be reminded of the way that he had been taunted. Jesus opens the doors to the blind, opens the doors to the lame, opens the doors to the outsiders, opens the the doors to the estranged, and says, you are all welcome. My house, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all people. All of you come into the temple. 
This is the point that Matthew is making. It is the story that he is drawing upon N.T. Wright in his book, Matthew for Everyone, says, the people who had been kept out were now welcomed in. The people who had been scorned were now healed. It was an action full of significance. It summed up everything that Jesus had been doing throughout his ministry. This one act of inviting the lame and inviting the blind back into the temple, says N.T. Wright, this summed up everything that Jesus was about. Taking the estranged, taking the alien, taking the outsider, taking the Gentile, taking the bleeding woman, taking the tax collector, taking the Roman centurion, and inviting them in for healing. Thank you, Jesus. We've quoted this before. A crucial feature of Matthew's gospel is Jesus' positive relations with so-called outcasts. He does it here, invites them right into the inner precincts of the temple. God has always been for the outcast and the foreigner because we are all needy and desperate outcasts. Can somebody say amen to that? There's this really fascinating thing that's happening here when Jesus cleanses the temple. And again, this wouldn't have taken hours and hours. It probably was a fairly short period, maybe as short as a half an hour, this whole episode. And then some blind come and some lame come and they are healed. Jesus is saying, this is your place. In our sermon on Matthew chapter 11, we noted that the greatest insult that they could hurl at Jesus was this complimentary insult. Your master is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Wow, what a great insult. They were telling the truth. Oh, this Jesus, he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors. In Matthew chapter 11, we noted this in an unexpected flip of the script. The out crowd is now the in crowd, and the in crowd is now the out crowd. Jesus puts a stop to the priestly duties. He puts a stop to the changing. He puts a stop to this farce in the name of religion, shuts it all down, presses pause, and then he he gives at least a momentary cameo, a glimpse into what true religiosity and true godliness looks like, brings the estranged, brings the foreigner, brings the outcast into the temple and heals them. Not this hierarchical, economically separate, us and them, me and you, over and under, more important and less important farce that existed in the temple. Jesus is like, my house of prayer is a house for all nations. And then he quietly slips away to Bethany. Quietly slips away to Bethany and encounters the fruitless fig tree. Now, Bethany is an interesting word. It comes from the Hebrew word Beth, which means house, and Hini, which means figs. House of figs. The name Bethany means house of figs, place of figs. I did a little bit of reading about this this week, and Bethany was a place not only where figs grew, because it's on the, I think, the southern slope of one of the major hills there. It's about 2.4 kilometers to the south and east of Jerusalem. It was known for figs, and Jesus retires to the town of Bethany. Just to think, had escalated. They quickly diffused. Jesus leaves. Everything resumes to normal. Jesus wakes up the next day, verse 17. And when he had left them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road. He's in the place of figs. He's in Bethany, the house of figs. He came to it. Oh, he's hungry. There's no coals in those days. There's no woolies. He's hungry. And he sees a fig tree. Just oh, lots of leaves. If you know anything about those big figs, they, the, the, the figs hide behind the leaves. And so, he, oh, this is going to be great. And he starts looking under leaves. No figs, no figs. Now, this is early in the season. This is like April. Now, the figs are not yet ripe. The figs are not going to ripen until June. But 
there were actually small figs that were beginning, should have been beginning to be on the tree. And in times of desperation and hunger, you would even eat the unripe figs. They tasted terrible, but they were nutritious. So Jesus knows, hey, I'm not looking. It's not June. It's not the time of the harvest. I'm not looking for a fully ripe fig. I just want something to put in my stomach. But look at what it says there. He says he found, it says he found nothing on it. So he says to the fig tree, let no fruit grow on you ever again, and immediately the fig tree withered away. Chapter 21 is encapsulated in verses 18 and 19. Jesus finds something that looks like a fruit-bearing tree that has the name of a fruit-bearing tree with no fruit, and he curses it. He curses it. The disciples are typically clueless as to what's happened, and so they come and they ask the question in verse 29, how did you do that? As if Jesus is going to describe the mechanics of miracles. The question they should have been asking is, what does this mean? They say, how did that happen? Man, that was a really cool miracle that you did there, Jesus. Can you pull a rabbit out of a hat? Can we see another cool thing? We love it when you do cool stuff. Remember that time that he fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes? That was so cool. I wonder how he did that. That's where the disciples are at. They're not thinking bigger picture. They're not thinking, why did he do this? What does this mean? They're just thinking, that was a really cool magic trick. We will return to the fruitless fig at the very end of the sermon The next thing that happens is Jesus goes into the temple again. We pick it up in verse 23. Now he came into the temple. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the rabble-rouser again. Here comes that guy that turned over the tables yesterday. What's going to happen? Before Jesus can get, you know, turning tables over again, they quickly stop him. They arrest his attention. Now he came into the temple, and the chief priest, hey, there he is. Okay, I'll talk to him. You You go left, I'll go right. And they accost Jesus. They confront him. They confront him, and they say, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are, big shot? Coming in here, turning over tables, inviting the lame and the blind in. Just who do you think you are? Ah, it wasn't until this week that I understood Jesus' answer. This is one of the things I love about preaching through the text is it forces you to take a look at the text. I had read this text a million times before and I always just thought that Jesus gave them basically a a mental problem. He gave them a quizzical tongue twister that they couldn't get their minds around. It wasn't until this week that I understood what Jesus is saying, and I want to explain it to you because it's a bomb. Jesus is like, oh, you want to know by what authority I do these things? I want to ask you a question, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was John's baptism from? Was it from heaven? Was it endorsed by heaven? Or was it just an earthly thing? Was it just something a man was doing? I used to think this was kind of like a tricky, just a clever little tricky way to trick them. Oh, good job, Jesus, you tricked them. I don't know how I read this passage for years and didn't figure out what Jesus is saying. Maybe you knew it all along and I'm late to the party. John is the baptizer. John is the one who, when Jesus came to the River Jordan... And John is like, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We're going to do it like this because we need to fulfill all the Old Testament. And John baptized Jesus. The word baptized, not only was he baptized, it means to immerse. And when he was immersed, the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was anointed. The word anointed in, in the Hebrew is Mashiach. He was messiahed. 
Christ is not Jesus' last name, like Asherik is my last name. This is saying he is the anointed Savior. In the Greek, it's Christ. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah. Jesus was Messiahed at the baptism of John. Jesus was Christed at the baptism of John. And so he says, you want to know by what authority I do these things? I got a question for you. That thing that John was doing, was that something that he invented or was God in that? Because if they say, oh no, God was in that, he's going to say, well, I was messiahed by my father at John's baptism. You want to know by whose authority I do these things? I got a question for you. That thing that John was doing in the wilderness, from men or from God? Well, they're not truth seekers, unfortunately. They are politicians. They reasoned among themselves, rather than giving a straight answer, they reasoned among themselves, verse 25, if we say from heaven that he's going to say to us, then why didn't you believe what John said? But if we say from men, then we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. And so they said to him, and I love this, we do not know, and they were telling the truth. Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Even on the day that Jesus was messiahed, even on the day that Jesus was Christed at the baptism of John, even on that day, there was a voice from heaven that sounded like many as thunder. If you're not willing to hear the voice of God, you will not hear the voice of God. If you will not do what God's voice will say to you, God is under no obligation to tell you anything. The people that hear the voice of God are those that will do what God says. God is not a circus performer. He's not like, hey, I'll do some really cool stuff and then you listen to what I say. God is like, I will do really cool stuff when you are in the stream of my providence, when you are living an obedient life, when you are filled with my spirit. I love this. We do not know. And Jesus is like, well, then there's nothing I could tell you that would make the difference then I'm not going to tell you. Jesus is standing in the precincts of the temple. Get the picture in your mind because we're coming to the close of the chapter. Precincts of the temple, crowd is gathering, confronted by religious leaders. He has just refused their request to answer the question, by whose authority do you do this? And he says, let me tell you two stories. I'm going to tell you two stories. Verse 28. What do you think? And I love Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is very fair. It's very even-handed. It's very mutual. Hey, I'm going to ask you, what do you think about this? There was a man, he had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. And he answered, and he said, I will not. But afterward, that son regretted it, and he went and worked. Then he came to the second, and likewise, he answered and said, I will go, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Not which said he would do the will of his father, which did the will of his father. And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before you. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, and when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe the preaching of John. There's something really big going on here. It's huge, and you need to get it. I need to get it. When Jesus had come up the hill atop that foal, and the palm branches were waving in front of them, when there was that initial commotion, the religious leaders in the temple said, Who is this? 
When Jesus says to them, by whose authority was John's baptism? Was it from men or was it from God? They say, we don't know. There's going to be a lot of people in answer to the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? There's going to be a lot of people that say, we do not know. And the tragedy of it is that no one has to say that. Peter knew. When Jesus is like, who do, who do you think I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, you're so smart, Peter. Good job. A, gold star on your test. He said, nobody taught you that. This knowledge is available to everyone. It's available to Muslims. It's available to Hindus. It's even available to Christians. It's even available to Seventh-day Adventists. Even Seventh-day Adventists can know Jesus authority and identity. Who is this? Do not find yourself saying, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. He's the guy they talk about in church a lot. Now, you need church to be able to say, he is Messiah, my Savior, the Son of the living God. This is life eternal, Jesus said, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do not say, we do not know. Jesus is like, let me tell you another story. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to a vine, vine dressers and he went away into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that, they might receive, that he might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. Then he sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son and said, hey, surely they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, ah, this is the heir. Come and let us kill him and we will seize his inheritance. Here is Jesus' even-handed teaching again. He's going to ask them a question. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Here it comes. Jesus inviting them to think, to reason it through. He's being fair. He's being mutual. He's being even-handed. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they effectively pronounce their own judgment in verse 41. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render, him, render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus is like, man, you guys, you look so religious. You wear the right clothes. You're standing in the right building. Haven't you read in your own Bible? Quoting from Psalm 118. Fascinatingly, for those of you that are students of Scripture, the very same psalm that was quoted at the beginning of this chapter, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. That's Psalm 118. And Jesus says, have you never read in Psalm 118 the stone that the builders rejected? He has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That seemingly useless stone rejected, defective, faulty, has actually become the very most important stone in all the building. Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be snatched from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomsoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's the imagery straight out of Daniel chapter 2. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, long legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, and the stone strikes the image on the feet, grinds it to powder. This is the language of judgment. 
This is the language of doom. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was talking about them, very perceptive of them. Hey, we think he's talking about us. Indeed. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. That's it. That's Matthew chapter 21, my friends. Let's take stock of what we've learned. The sinners, by their lives, appeared to be saying no to God, but they ended up saying yes. Guy had two sons. The one said no and did it. The other said yes and didn't. Jesus is saying the tax collectors, the prostitutes, go into the kingdom of God before you. These sinners look like they're saying no to God. But because they are sinners, they are aware that they need a Savior, and they actually have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of perspective, and they end up doing God's will. But you religious people who don't see yourselves as harlots, who don't see yourselves as lame, who don't see yourselves as naked, who don't see yourselves as tax collectors, you don't have any needs. And so you say we're going to do God's will. You dress in the right clothes. You're sitting in the right place. You're in the temple. You look religious. You have the name of God's people, but you say you will do my will and don't. The priests and the scholars appeared to be saying yes to God, but in actuality they were saying no. Religious people, friends, and this is a lesson for the Kingscliff Church, and I want you to take this on board, take this home, put it in your pocket, think about it. This isn't just true of Seventh-day Adventism, by the way. It's true of Christianity. It's true of Islam. It's true of Hinduism. It's true of all religions because it's the religion of the human heart. Exclusivity and supposed moral superiority is the, is the universal experience of humanity independent of religious affiliation. Religious people love their standards of exclusivity. Us and them. But friends, God exalts the standard of inclusivity. That has been the That has been the reverberating message of Matthew. Bleeding woman, come on in. Roman centurion, come on in. I've not seen so great faith in all of Israel. Tax collector, you can be one of my disciples. Lame, blind, come into the temple. Jesus' standard is not exclusivity, it is inclusivity. What is the standard of the Kingscliff Church? It's really easy when it's on the page. But what is our standard? Now, our standard is probably not vicious or nefarious or purposeful, but the truth of the matter is, is that many of us inexorably, instinctively gravitate Sabbath after Sabbath, week after week, year after year, to the people that we know and the ones that we're comfortable with. And every week, people come and go into this building that you do not know. And very few of us take the time to introduce ourselves because we operate, while not in religious exclusivity, we operate in social exclusivity and don't pretend like it doesn't happen. Every Sabbath, there are people in this church that you could and should meet. You don't have to meet everybody. How about one person a week? No, what's going to happen is, as soon as this church is done, you're going to go right over to the people that you love, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're your friends. You love them. You have a social connection with them. Some of you have known these people for 10 years, 20 years, or more. 
But friends, if it's not religious exclusivity, it's social exclusivity. Even for some, it can be Seventh-day Adventist exclusivity. So they look askance at a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Catholic or a Muslim. Friends, I want to tell you something. Religious people love exclusivity. God loves inclusivity. His message is a universal message. His love is a universal love. And his call is a universal call. Can the church say amen? Don't pretend like you love God's universality and don't enact it in this building. Don't pretend like you love God's universality and don't enact it in your life. I'm not saying you have to be a giant extrovert like I'm an extrovert, but put into practice the basic love and magnanimity and inclusivity of God. And I'm speaking especially to my teenagers. Man, teenagers can be the cruelest people on earth. Who needs dictators when you have teenagers? And the cruelty and the social isolationism with which they can treat people, not just the teenagers in here, but by the way, they are not exempt from it, but teenagers all over the world. Where is that group of teens or that group of 20-somethings who will break the mold and say, you know what, away with culture, away with social isolationism, away with insularity, we're going to get to know people. I'm, I'm thrilled about this Friday thing. If you look at the Friday thing, one of their standards on their little card here that they've put out. Where is it right here? I'm reading, I'm reading. Included, number one, included to share in the faith, hope, and love of God. Included, not excluded. God is not in the business of exclusion. He's in the business of inclusion. Let the church of God say amen. This chapter's got judgment all over it. There's judgment in the air. If if you were in tune to what Jesus was doing... You could smell it. And I want to tell you this, friends, 2016, where we are living, this is why I want to get into the book of Revelation. If you, if you will pay attention, judgment is in the air. Jesus flips the tables, puts a momentary stop to the temple activities and effectively says God's judgment is upon the temple and activities here will soon stop. It will be destroyed in AD 70. Number two, he curses the fruitless fig tree. No more will fruit grow on you. You have the name of a fig tree. You have the leaves of a fig tree. Where's the fruit? Number three, neither will I tell you. Hey, whose authority are you doing all of this stuff? What about John? If you won't answer me, I won't answer you. The time for inquiry is over, he says. There will come a time where the time for inquiry will be over. And he that is righteous will be righteous still, and he that is filthy will be filthy still. He that is loving will be loving still, and he that is cruel will be cruel still. And finally, Jesus says there's a stone coming, and it's a stone upon whom you can fall and be broken and become a sinner in need of a savior, a harlot, a a, a repentant priest, a, a tax collector, a bleeding woman. You can fall and be broken on the stone and realize you have a need of a savior. Or you can not realize that you need a savior. You can not fall on the stone and be ground Buy it to powder. Judgment is in the air. You read Matthew chapter 21, and Jesus is headed toward the cross, but Jerusalem is headed toward destruction. And not because God is imposing it, but because God is allowing them to have the consequences of their own free choices. God's judgment is against sin, not against sinners. Is that you, Leon, with the amen? Thank you. That was, the appropriate, that was an appropriately placed Amen. God's judgment is against sin, not sinners. 
God's judgment is against hypocrisy, it's against religious pretentiousness, and it is against cold indifference, exclusivity, whether social or economic or religious. As we have made our way through this chapter, the triumphant entry, the cleansing of the temple, the fruitless fig tree, Jesus' authority, and John's baptism, the parable of the two sons, and the parable of the wicked tenants, friends, every time I preach through a chapter, I ask myself, what is the unifying theme in this chapter? Yes, there are little tidbits. There is a meal to be had, but is there a unifying theme in this meal? Is there a unifying theme in this text, in this chapter? And the answer is yes. This chapter is about appearances versus actualities. In every single instance, we are confronted with the appearance of something that is not what it appears to be. For example, Jesus does not look like a king as he winds his way up on that fall into Jerusalem, but he is a king. He's not a warrior king. He's a king of love and a king of mercy and a king of forgiveness and a king of inclusivity. He doesn't look like a king, but he is a king. The temple looks like God's house, Jesus puts a stop to it and says, not anymore. Used to be God's house. Get this stuff out of here. The leaders look like God's men, but they are not. The fig tree looks fruitful, but it is not. The one son looks obedient, but he is not. The other son looks rebellious, but he is not. The vineyard looks productive. Everything was set up for the vineyard to be productive, but it is not. The stone looks defective and it looks useless, but it is not. There is a symmetry to chapter 21. Jesus enters Jerusalem as an unassuming king, as a humble, dusty prophet sitting on a, on a fault. That's how it opens. It opens in obscurity. It opens with humility, and it closes in obscurity. Ah, what are we going to do with this stone? Ah, that stone's good for nothing. Chuck it in the useless pile. We'll grind it into gravel. Throw that stone in Jesus. No, no, no. No, that stone? That stone that was just rejected? That stone right there looks faulty, looks defective, looks useless? It is not. It will become the stone upon which God will build his giant kingdom of love, not a kingdom of power, not a kingdom of violence, not a kingdom of exclusivity, but a kingdom of love and inclusivity and of mercy and of forgiveness. Friends, I want to tell you something. It is not enough to look like a fruitful tree. Somebody should have said amen to that. You missed your chance. Here's another chance. It is not enough to look like the people of God. There we go. Now we're getting the hang of it. It's not enough to look like the people of God. It is not enough to look like a Christian family. Kids go to Seventh-day Adventist school. It doesn't make them Seventh-day Adventists. You put your butt in a Seventh-day Adventist building on Sabbath morning. It doesn't make you a Seventh-day Adventist. Any more than putting something in a garage makes it a car. One thing to look like a Christian family and an entirely different thing to be a family following Jesus. It is not enough to look like a mostly healthy church. I think the Kingscliff Church is a mostly healthy church. Not enough. If Jesus came around here and started looking under our leaves, hopefully he would find at least some fig, even if it's not perfectly ripe and delicious to the palate. At least he would find something nutritious. I think he would. I have confidence in this church. I think he would. I don't think where we need to be. I don't think we are where we need to be, but I am certain we are not where we should be. I think we could be in a better spot, but we're in an okay spot. 
It is not enough to look like a mostly healthy church. It is not enough to look like a godly pastor, I'll tell you that. I can travel all around and preach to everybody under the sun, and if I am not living the life of a true Christian, it is irrelevant. None of this can fool God. None of this is, none of this is persuasive to God if in my heart of hearts I'm not really seeking him and seeking his spirit. Don't think I don't know that, and you pray for me. Hypocrisy will become a central theme in chapters 22, 23, and 24. This is not Jesus' casual teacher. This is not business as usual, my friends. This is Jesus. There is, there is urgency in his breath, and there needs to be urgency in our breath. Just as we are coming to the close of Matthew, my friends, we are coming to the close of time. Did you hear what I said? It's 2016. Just as we are coming to the close of Matthew, we are coming to the close of time. Now, I don't know if that's 10 years or 100 years, but I know it's not 1,000. Fruit is the difference. That's why the sermon's titled, The Fruity Difference. Fruit is the difference. Not just the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, patience, meekness, self-control. Yes, 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 Father, flood this church with that fruit. But the fruit of generosity. When it comes time to pull the pocket out, spend a little money on the house of God. Visited a church when I was in British Columbia. It was a church that, frankly, I was thrilled to visit and I found it embarrassing to come back to my own church in some regards. Church of 600 members, double our size, slightly less than double. This church just built the most amazing facility I have ever seen in an Adventist or a non-Adventist church. It is phenomenal. It's in British Columbia, just about 40 minutes outside of Vancouver, and it's called the Church in the Valley, and they built a $17 million facility from their humble little congregation. And the great thing about it is, if you go to see this church, this $17 million facility is not a monument to man's pride. It is, a, it is a place of service to the local community. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. They have a garage with three car lifts in their church. You know why? So they can have cars that are donated to them, fix those cars up, and then give them to the single mothers in their community. They also hold oil changes for single moms, free oil changes and tune-ups on their car three times a year. So it takes a big facility to put three garages in there. They have a gym in their church, state-of-the-art gym that any member in the community can, can come and work out in free. So even though it's a great, big, beautiful, giant facility, it's not a great, big, beautiful sanctuary. In fact, the sanctuary is not much larger than this sanctuary. The building, you know what they said? We are not just a worshiping community, and we want everybody to know we got a great and beautiful place to worship. We are a serving community, and we need a building that will enable us to serve our unique neighborhood, community, and situation. And when this church put their head to it, they said, yeah, $17 million, no problem. Our church, it's time to raise $600,000. Oh, it's a lot of money. Maybe for you it is. Not for God. Not for Jesus. Jesus had that $92,000 Australian all sorted out by some, seven, by some person who's sitting in America, not even a Seventh-day Adventist yet. 
Let's just do something really awesome in this church and really awesome for our community, and let's let God sort out the financial details. What do you think? And if you want to come alongside, my wife and I have made a donation. We were happy to make what we regard as a sacrificial donation. But you know what? The project will go forward without our donation, but we missed the blessing. Friends, I want to tell you something. Fruit is the difference. Not just love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and all of that, but the fruit of generosity, the fruit of kindness, the fruit of inclusivity, the fruit of, of sweet words, the fruit of converts. Man, I tell you, this church, I want to see it full. Do you want to see this church full? And I don't mean full of it. I mean, I want to see this church full. Amen. There's just no reason there shouldn't be 2,000 or more people in this church every single week. Do the people in Kingscliff need this message? Do the people in Chindra need this message? Do the people in Coolangatta need this message? You better believe they need it. We should not be satisfied with business as usual like we've had here in Kingscliff. Oh, no, 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 this church is fine. It's not fine. It's not fine. We should be filled with people who are coming to know Jesus. Friends, fruit is the difference. Fruit is the difference. It's the fruity difference. My invitation to you, do not be satisfied to have the name. Do not be satisfied to have the look. Plead for the fruit. Plead for it in your life. Plead for it in your spouse's life. Plead for it in your children's life. Plead for it in your church. Pray for the fruit, for the spirit, for conversions, for transformations, for the outpouring of service and generosity and love and meekness. And friends, maybe, just maybe, we will get the privilege not to sit in social isolation and just wait for Jesus to come back and save us because we're already right about everything. Maybe, just maybe, we will have the opportunity to play a role, a pivotal role in this area in hastening the return of our Savior. Amen. Can you get excited about that? Father in heaven, We need the Spirit to come and make the fruity difference. Father, we don't want to be satisfied with leaves and a name. Father, we want to bear fruit. And I'm so thankful that Jesus does not wait for us to have everything figured out, to have perfectly pure motives and perfectly uh, symmetrical and accurate theology before we can be used. Father, you'll take the blind, you'll take the lame, you'll take the meek, You'll take the bleeding, you'll take the Roman, you'll take the centurion, you'll take the smoker, you'll take the drinker, you'll take the pork eater, you'll take the skeptic, you'll take the whatever, however we come to you, you'll take the the stubborn, you'll take the gossiper. Father, we come to you and we are praying for fruit in this church in this community, the fruit of generosity, the fruit of love, the fruit of mercy, the fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of inclusivity, the fruit of Christ-likeness. Father, may this be a church that is known, that is known in this community for more than just being a church. Father, we want to be known for service. We want to be known for love. We want to be difference makers. Make the fruity difference, we pray, in our church, in our families, in our homes, and in our personal lives is my prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone who wants Jesus to make the fruity difference in their life say, Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. 
To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.